I'm a graduate of St. Augustine High School. And one of the things that St. Augustine does is they, they provide young black men with positive black men in their lives. And I want to do that to every defendant that comes in my courtroom. I want to put some positive people in their lives. That way I believe we can and we will change their path. Well, well, I guess one of the primary ways that I'm different from Mr. DeLarge is I would never claim that my being white is something that would distinguish me from him. The fact is, I'm Cuban. I'm a light-skinned Hispanic. But for people who see the world through those kind of eyes, I guess there's some kind of traction in saying I'm a, Mr. Wainwright is white and I'm black. I'm just, I'm really just, I'm dumbfounded that anyone who wants to sit as a judge could say something really that immature. And I guess that's the difference between the two of us. Mr. DeLard says, I've been practicing almost nine years. I've been practicing for three decades. I have represented 8,000 families in this town. I have the grandchildren of the people I represented 30 years ago, I represent today. And the reason is because everyone knows Mr. Wainwright is honest, he's hardworking, he cares about justice, and he doesn't see race. Just like I said, I don't represent criminals, which Mr. DeLarge is a criminal defense lawyer. The people I work for are human beings, and I don't see them as black or white. Now, my first hundred days, I definitely wouldn't see how many people I could get to plead guilty so I could clear the docket so then I could claim I was putting them into some kind of class for convicted felons. This city and this justice system is in a catastrophe. This is worse than any hurricane. And Dr. Fauci said today that now, if we want to really be honest, this is going to be going on until at least December of next year. So the people, the men who have been sitting in prison for six months now and haven't set foot into a courtroom, we're going to have to find out a way to show those men some human compassion and if we can't give them trials, many of them have been sitting for two or three, four years. We're going to have to find a way to let them be released on electronic home incarceration until we can have their trials. But I've done 750 jury trials. Mr. George claims he's done 30. John, Mr. Wainwright, we'll let you... Um, get to the, that information a little bit later in the questions, but we're going to have to move on to the second question, you, if you don't mind. Sorry to have to cut you off. 
That's okay. If there was a timer or something, but you're fine. Thank you. No, no problem, John. Can I just uh, absolutely one moment? Uh, because we do have uh, a new candidate that has come in. Thank goodness. Okay, that's Miss Stephanie Bridges. I'd like you to state your full name. How are you doing? Your profession, how long you've been in that profession, and what seat you are seeking, including your ballot number. Okay, my name is Stephanie Bridges. I'm a candidate for judge of criminal district court, section K. My ballot number is nine, number 93. I am a, I have practiced uh, law for the past 13 years in multiple parishes, both criminal and civil courts and on the appellate and district level. I am currently the executive director of the New Orleans Council for Community and Justice, founded as the National Conference of Christians and Jews. Yes, thank you very much. Okay, Donna, you can go on. Thank you. And so we have, um, we have a full slate of questions to ask each of you. Um, and so we're gonna ask that as much as you can that you keep your answer to around a minute, um, as close to that as you possibly can. We're going to ask, answer questions. Um, the, my next question is, um, well, Ms. Bridges, let me ask you the first question. How are you different from your opponent, and what plans do you have for your first 100 days on the bench? Okay. I am different from my opponents in that I have well-rounded experience. I have experience in the uh, nonprofit area where we were, where I stated that I worked for the New Orleans Council for Community and Justice, and we work on all we address all social ills, including the criminal justice reform. And as a practicing attorney and as a former attorney. Uh, for the city of New Orleans, um, where I work with on issues involving zoning, um, the Department of Safety and Permits, as well as um, landmarks. I believe my legal experience and my life experience makes me very unique in this arena. Thank you, ma'am. We're going to ask that you answer the questions in this order, Ms. Bridges, Mr. DeLarge, and Mr. Wainwright. My next question is, with reference to your experience in criminal district court, if you could answer quickly, how many jury and judge trials have you tried at criminal court, and how many of those were domestic cases? Okay, I have, I have not had jury trials at criminal court. Most of my, my court uh, cases in criminal have been bench trials. Thank you. And, and Any of those domestic? No, no, ma'am. I have not had domestic uh, cases, although working for the National Conference of Christians and Jews, um, formerly known as the National Conference of Christians and Jews, the New Orleans Council for Community and Justice, I have served, um, I have assisted domestic violence uh, victims. In Thank, you, Thank you. Mr. DeLarge? Yes, ma'am. I've had approximately 30 jury trials. Uh, the majority of those have been in criminal district court, although I have a couple of trials that were in other jurisdictions in the state of Louisiana. 
I've had, I don't know, 10 judge trials, and of those judge trials, half of those have been domestic. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Wainwright. <clears throat> I keep, I quit keeping track of the number of jury trials that I have done at around 750. And I have tried everything from a simple possession of marijuana case to two death penalty cases. Now we don't pursue the death penalty much anymore, but certainly a judge has to be responsible if there's a death penalty case in their section. As far as how many bench trials I've done, I never pled anybody guilty to possession of marijuana in my career. And all of those were bench trials. And so I've probably done 1,500 to 2,000 bench trials in the criminal district court. Any of those domestic cases? Oh, I apologize. Uh, you know, I really can't recall me trying more than one or two domestic cases. You know, I'm a person that once I understand the facts of a case, if I can't resolve a case like that ordinarily, generally I don't try cases like that. I think people need to be responsible for their actions Lots of times, by the time you get five, six months, eight months, nine months, a year down the road, people have reconciled and, you know, there's not a trial. But uh, I have had cases of domestic abuse where it was men being domestically abused as well as women being domestically abused. And something I've noticed in the past probably five years is for the first time in the building, we're having homosexual couples who report domestic abuse. I don't think it was because there was no domestic abuse before. I just think that people aren't afraid to, to report it. So I have mediated uh, all kinds of domestic abuse uh, cases, but I, I really can't recall trying one. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to move on to the next question, and that would be, if you could tell us in a minute or less why you believe the voters should elect you to this court. I believe the voters should, should elect me to this court because of my life and legal experience that is vastly different from my opponent. As I stated, um, I have been an advocate for victim. I have worked to better our city with the various politicians, business, community, and faith leaders. I will be a fair and impartial judge, and I will administer justice as it, as it seems fit. Um, I believe that as a mother of four sons, I know the importance of feeling and being safe in this city. I live this experience every day, and that would make me a great, a great candidate for judge of criminal district court, section K. 
Thank you, ma'am. Same question, Mr. DeLars. Yes, ma'am. I think I'm the most qualified candidate in this particular race um, because of my background. I'm a native New Orleanian. I literally grew up in the inner city, so I know some of the pitfalls and some of the problems that our young men and women uh, have to go through. Uh, I was a, a teacher and a former high school administrator, so I, I witnessed and experienced with these kids um, some socioeconomic issues, some home issues, and how that all plays a role in a young person's path. Um, I do have the experience of being on both sides of the aisle. I believe I, I possess the uh, requisite, requisite experience with regards to uh, trials, with regards to motion practice, evidentiary hearing, um, even um, taking things up to the Fourth Circuit and even the Louisiana Supreme Court. I've literally done all of that and I think all of that together, along with my youth, which I think is actually an asset uh, in this particular race, makes me the most top qualified candidate. Thank you. Mr. Wainwright, same question. Well, I guess I'm just from an older kind of school. I'm 67 years old. And I've been practicing in the criminal district court for three decades. I've done everything, including death penalty cases. And I never would have ever dreamt of being a prosecutor for one second in this racist criminal justice system that New Orleans is and that America is. So, you know, Mr. Whoever wants to claim that I signed up for a job to put black men in jail so I'm qualified to be a judge. God bless them. I have always granted people the true presumption of innocence. I have always defended our Constitution and Bill of Rights. And there's 8,000 families in this city that I have represented over the past three decades who know that I'm an honest, fair, knowledgeable and experienced judge that a person that has never actually tried a single criminal jury trial in their life would claim to be qualified to sit in the courthouse that tries the most jury trials in the South just highlights the fact that I guess for me, the meaning of the word experienced is a little bit different. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And um, my next question is, um, tell me what, how you feel about the current, what is your opinion with reference to the Black Lives Matter movement? One minute, please. Ms. Bridges. Uh, I believe the Black Lives Matter movement is critical to address, to opening up the eyes of the, of the public for the first time to seeing the plight of our people, of, of the black people and brown, and to see the systemic racism that has always been in the system, in our criminal justice system. I want to state that knowing the law is the importance of actually having experience. If you know the law and know how to apply it, you can do it with jury and bench trial. That makes you an experienced person. Thank you. Thank you. 
Mr. Delars? Yes, ma'am. I, I think the, the black, first of all, let me tell you that black lives do matter. And it's interesting that, that you know, we, we're talking about that today, given the, the, the racial and, and social climate that's going on in our country. And this Black Lives Matter movement, it, it's a response when a group of people, they, they're tired. They're tired, they're fed up of a system that has oppressed them for so long. And you see it coming out when they take to the streets and they peacefully protest against that system. Um, it's a system that, that is running rampant. It actually um, permeates every aspect of our society, including criminal district court right here in New Orleans. Far too many of our African-American young men and young women get caught up in the system. And that's why I'm running for judge, not to put them in jail, but to give them a lifeline for hope and survival in this city. And the means, the idea is to get them all of the resources they need so that they can be successful even in the, the climate and the racial tension-filled world that we live in today. Thank you. Mr. Wainwright? Well, as a person who had crosses burned in my front yard by the KKK when I was a child because I played with black children as, as a person who grew up with the water fountains that said colored on them and where people had to sit on the back of the bus and in a separate part of the movie theater, for me, black lives have always mattered. I gave up a career in multinational, I gave up a multinational trading company and a career in international finance to come to the criminal district court to fight for the liberty of black men in opposition to the drug war. Black Lives Matter? Absolutely. The drug laws are the new Jim Crow. And I've been at the forefront for 30 years challenging the drug laws in this country and the drug laws in this state and anybody who knows anything about the history of the criminal justice system in New Orleans for the past 30 years know that this guy right here, this is the reason people are not arrested for possession of marijuana anymore in this city. Thank you, sir. Thank That's you. Your time. Thank you. Mr. Brandon, you have the floor. Thank you, Donna. Okay, my first question is, in regards to criminal and prison reform, what have you done to ensure policy change? What was the last part of your question, sir? In regards to criminal and prison reform, what yes. have you done to influence policy changes? By working, um, this is Stephanie Bridges. By working with the New Orleans Council for Community and Justice, that is all we do, is put together policies for criminal justice reform as it relates to sentencing, mandatory sentencing, as it relates to a program, for instance, that uh, Judge Lori White and Judge Arthur Hunt have put together, the reentry program, where they have uh, this, the lifers mentor the young people that are the um, lesser incarcerated people to come in to have, um, to help them, mentor them throughout into 
um, and and to mentor them, excuse me, to mentor them so that when they are released, that they uh, would look, um, when they get out, that they would be given jobs. I'm sorry, when they look, when they get out, they are given jobs. My thing is I want to enhance that program because I want to help them uh, because most of the, the time you're dealing with poverty, you're dealing with mental illness, you're dealing with drug addiction. My thing is to enhance that program to get them the counseling that they need uh, regarding um, drug abuse. Uh, if it's a mental issue uh, situation, for instance, we have a lot of people in the military that are having uh, mental blocks and that they get caught up in the criminal justice system. And I want to um, work with the Vera Institute to make certain that these needs are addressed. That, uh, and as well as the young men who come in out, even though they have jobs, I want to make certain also that they get the education that they want and the, or that they get the training, the job training that they need so that they can have good jobs that would be able to support themselves and their family members. Thank you. And Mr. Byron, I'm going to ask you if you could repeat the question, just bring it up. Thank you. In regards to criminal and prison reform, what have you done to influence policy? So as a uh, criminal defense attorney, when I use the word criminal defense, I'm talking about the type of law that I practice, not the people or the persons that I actually represent. Um, I am on the forefront, literally in the trenches of policy reform itself. I do work with some legislators in Baton Rouge, including Royce Plessis and Ted James, who are both uh, good friends of mine, and both of them have uh, pushed the agenda for uh, prison reform, for legislative um, reform with regards to uh, criminal laws that are archaic. Um, and so we, I will continue to work with those guys. And as a judge, obviously, I will be able to push that envelope um, a little further. Um, and that is another reason why I want to be a judge of criminal district court section K. Thank you, sir. Mr. Wainwright? Mm. Well, I think the most important accomplishment I had was... In the 90s, we had a particularly vicious three strikes law that any three felonies would cause you to get natural life. And Harry Connick actually gave eight men life in prison for cocaine residue, which of course any sane person thinks is insane. Well, I knew if I went to Baton Rouge and complained about it, they would say it's that crazy liberal Gary Wainwright. He thinks nobody should go to prison. And they would say next, what do you think? Murderers shouldn't go to prison. Because believe me, I've heard this dumb stuff for 30 years. I've been at the leader. I've been the leader in this state for 30 years. I brought the drug court programs to Louisiana from Florida in the 90s. But at any rate, I, there was a group called Citizens and Victims Against Crime, and the head of it was Sandy Krasnov, and they were the ones that got the three strikes law put in. But they thought it would only be used for bad guys, for violent people. So 
So I brought Sandy to court one day to watch him see a black man, because it's always a black man, to see a black man given life in prison for cocaine residue. And he was so incensed that that would happen, and he never knew that this law was being used like that. The Victims and Citizens Against Crime of Louisiana marched up to Baton Rouge and got the law changed so that no one could ever get life in prison like that. That's just one of the things I've done over 30 years. Excuse me, Mr. Wainwright. We have uh, maybe 30 seconds left on this particular section. Yes, you know, I appreciate it. I thought I had my minute, so, I mean, there's a lot of other things I can talk about. Okay, so there was another law. It was called Drug Offender Second or Subsequent. It was a drug law that had a built-in multiple bill into it. So if you got convicted like a possession when intended to distribute cocaine, and you had a prior possession of marijuana conviction, the minimum mandatory sentence was 30 years in prison without parole. And that law had been on the books since 1935. And I knew I could get it declared unconstitutional, but they never used it in New Orleans. So I tricked a prosecutor into filing those charges here in a criminal district court. And when I tricked him into filing the charges, I filed the paperwork and a law that people had tried to strike down for thir since 1935, I got it declared unconstitutional by the Louisiana Supreme Court, and okay. 135 men were released from prison. Great, great. Okay, Mr. Wainwright, I'm sorry, we're out of time. We have another group coming in. I want to thank everyone for participating, and good luck uh, in your campaign. Hello, Ms. Harris. Thank you for coming in. Hi. Sorry we're a little late. Uh, my name is Dawn Abair, and I'm with Voters East of the Industrial Canal. Uh, so we just going to get started because I know it's late. But I'd like you to give us your full name, uh, what is your profession, how long you've been in that profession, and what seat you are seeking, including your ballot number. Okay. Angel Harris. I'm running for Criminal District Court Judge Section L, and my number is 97. I am a civil rights attorney. I have been um, a former public defender, currently a civil rights attorney with an organization called the Justice Collaborative, and I have been practicing criminal law and civil rights law for 11 years now. Okay, great. Thank you. So I'd like to introduce you to our moderators. We have Donna Glapion and Brandon Gilmore, who is with You're Going to Fill Me podcast. Okay, okay, let's get started. Hi, Ms. Harris. Good night. Good night. Um, my first question is, why are you seeking to unseat the current judge? My entire platform is based on reimagining our current criminal court system and reimagining a system that's based in rehabilitation and not mass incarceration. And I believe that my opponent, uh, the current incumbent, is a part of the status quo and is a part of perpetuating a lot of the issues that are currently wrong with the criminal court system that I have seen since the beginning of my career that haven't changed. And so instead of waiting for change and trying to demand change, um, I believe that it was time for me to step up and really get into a position of power where I can actually start implementing the changes that I've been pushing for my entire career. 
Thank you. My next question. <clears throat> With your experience in criminal court, <clears throat> what diverse experience do you have in this area of law, and why do you think there should be a change in the division of this court? Mm -hmm. So, can you, sorry, can you repeat the first part of the question? With your experience in criminal court, mm -hmm. what diverse experience do you have in this area of law, and why do you think there should be a change in this division okay. of court? So my experience, I started out as a public defender in Orleans Parish. I also worked as a public defender in Calvisu Parish. I did death penalty defense in, uh, with the ACLU's Capital Punishment Project, and I worked for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, where I did direct representation, appellate work, and also uh, impact litigation. So my entire career has been based in criminal defense or criminal justice reform. And throughout my experiences, I have been able to witness the various injustices that come with our criminal court system. One being the disproportionate um, sentences that are being uh, given to African Americans and, and people of color in our criminal court system. I've also witnessed the criminalization of poverty, and that's part of my platform, which is stopping the criminalization of poverty. I've seen individuals being treated very differently based on their socioeconomic status, or based on their race. And I think that it's time for us to stop that, and there shouldn't be different systems based on where you come from or how much money you have. I also believe that we should be seeking alternatives to incarceration. Not saying that people shouldn't be held accountable for their actions, but there are people who are entering into our court system that are dealing with mental health issues, that are dealing with drug addiction, but they're not getting treatment for those issues. Thank you. And my last question before I turn it over to Ms. Lafayette. <clears throat> how do you feel how do you feel about Black Lives Matter? And what is your opinion in reference to Black Lives Matter? So as a uh person who formerly worked for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, my entire career has also been based in a racial analysis and I believe in racial justice. Um and I, so the movement as a whole, I believe that it is very important for us to acknowledge the humanity of black lives because history has shown us that that humanity has been stripped away from African Americans and particularly in our criminal court system. We have seen African Americans being treated in less than humane, in a less than humane fashion. And also when we look at the prison system in general, we have seen um, the disparities and, and Sometimes the prison system can be reflective of uh, slavery when you think of Angola, for example, and also I've worked in Mississippi um, where there's parchment. Those are former plantations. And so I think that our criminal court system is based and rooted in a history of slavery, and that's something that we cannot ignore. Thank you so much. Donna? Good evening, Ms. Harris. Um, I have a few questions for you. My first question is, tell us how you're different from your opponent, and then tell us how what your plans would be for your first 100 days on the bench. Okay. Um, <laughs> I am very different from my opponent. One, my career um, is very different from my opponent. As I've stated, my career has been in criminal defense and criminal justice reform the entire time that I have been practicing law. Um, I am also different because I have worked directly with individuals and directly impacted communities 
and have been of assistance with them, not only in direct representation, but also in helping them be empowered and to demand change from elected officials. And that's something that I take pride in. I also um, have an analysis around trauma-informed practices. And I think that that's something that judges need, particularly in the criminal court system, and also when we're talking specifically about the criminal court system in Orleans Parish, because there is a lot of trauma as a result of Hurricane Katrina and other aspects that aren't being dealt with um, as a whole in the criminal court system. Those factors aren't being brought into consideration when, when individuals are being sentenced or when they're being brought into the courtroom. And so that is something that I bring. Um, I also bring, um, I'm a trainer in implicit bias, and I train judges, I train practitioners. And so one of the things that I would bring to the court is that analysis around implicit bias and making sure that implicit bias doesn't come into the courtroom and that everyone who enters into the courtroom has equal access to justice. And that transitions into the follow-up question about what I would do in the first 100 days. Um, one, just really setting a tone in the courtroom, a tone of respect, a tone of dignity for everyone who enters the courtroom, not just defendants, but also the victims. I would, one, I have to review the current docket that's going on um, in the court and see if there are individuals who particularly if in the first 100 days we are still dealing with COVID-19, I would want to look at the docket and see if there are ways that we can relieve the prison population in order to control COVID-19. So it, it depends on where we are with COVID, what my plans would be in the first 100 days, because that would absolutely be a priority for me. Um, if we have things under control with COVID-19, I would want to really establish and affirm specialty courts, drug courts, mental health courts. Those are things that I would want to continue um, when I'm on the bench and making sure that people who should be in those programs are in those programs. Thank you for that response. Um, my next question, when it comes to preventing deadly force by police, do you agree or disagree that law enforcement agencies should be federally regulated versus allowing states the discretion when it comes specifically to statutes regarding stand your ground and no not warrant laws? I think when it comes to um, police violence, I think sometimes it's often better for the federal government to be the governing party because you have a lot of conflicts of interest when you are working on a local or a state level. We've seen in the past, and some of the work that I've actually done when I was at the NAACP um, was police accountability work. And one of the problems that we came into was because of the relationships between police officers and district attorney's offices, it was often hard for the district attorney's office to hold those officers accountable. And so when we're also thinking about lawmakers and the relationships that local lawmakers may have with law enforcement, it does create or can create a conflict of interest where we aren't holding police officers as accountable as we should be because of the local relationship. But I think the federal government is in a place where they can regulate that. But I do think that we should always demand accountability for police officers and any other position of power in our government. And I say that, you know, I'm talking about judges, I'm talking about other elected officials as well. I think that we should demand accountability for 
people who are holding such important roles in our community, particularly when we're talking about the health and safety of the community. Thank you for that response. Ms. Dawn, that is all of the questions that I have this evening. Well, thank you. Um, would you, you have a couple more minutes. Would you like to say anything else? Some last statements? Um, I would just like to say that my platform, the three main tenets of my platform are equal access to justice, alternatives to incarceration, and stopping the criminalization of poverty. And I think if we really start focusing on or beginning with those three things, we can really come up with a better way of regulating our criminal court system. And I think that oftentimes we look at the simple answers, but what we are dealing with is a complex problem. And it's going to take more than the easy way out. So far, we have been going with the easy solution. And I think that it's time for us to really take a deeper analysis of how we are conducting our criminal court system. And that's the only way that we are going to have healthier and safer communities in New Orleans. Well, thank you so much for participating. Uh, yeah, my greatest respect running for office during this difficult time with COVID-19. So good luck in your campaign, and thank you for participating. Thank you we very much. We appreciate you coming to the forum this evening. Thank, thank you. you. Uh-huh. Yeah, look. Feel me now. For the I'm running for Louisiana Public Service Commission District 1 seat, and I'm ballot number 64. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Allen? You're on mute. You're on mute. There you go. Okay. Hi, I'm Alan Bourne. I'm running for Public Service Commission District 1, and uh, I'm a practicing attorney and have been for the last 35 years. Thank you. Kevin Pearson. Hi, yes, I, since we're doing the full name up, first name is Joseph Kevin Pearson. Um, I'm an investment advisor. I've done that 38 years. Uh, I recently held, uh, was term limited out. I was a state representative for the Eastern Slidell District 76 for uh, 12 years. Term limited and uh, now, as everyone else, seeking the Office of Public Service Commissioner of District Number 1 in ballot number 65. Thank you. William Bortfield. Hi, my name is William Bortfield. I am currently a college uh, student at University of New Orleans, and I am also running for the Public Service Commission District 1 seat. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Scarmetta, could you unmute your... Uh, okay, so what I'd like you to do is to uh, state your full name your profession, how long you've been in, in that profession, what seat you are seeking, and your ballot number. Oh, ballot number. Uh, see if I can locate my ballot number for That's you. Okay. That's okay. Let's go on. My name is Eric Skirmetta. Uh, my profession is a uh, private profession as attorney at law. been an attorney for 35 years. Uh, my public service profession, I've been serving as Public Service Commissioner for District 1 for approximately uh, approaching 12 years. Okay, thank you very much. So what I'm going to do is ask you uh, some questions relating to the Public uh, Service Commission. So um, if elected to the position, 
How would you advance equity in a state where elect electric bills contribute to housing insecurity? Basically, um, the high cost of people living, uh, you know, in the state right now, and we have very high uh, energy bills or electric bills. So, would you maybe give someone uh, a work on a process to work with them on paying their bills or getting them lower bills? if they have a small income coming into their residence. Hey, John. Uh, absolutely. My research indicates that for most people, utility bill is their second largest monthly expense. So a small increase in the rate uh, makes a big difference to your pocketbook. And one of the issues I'm running on is it has been 20 years since we considered deregulating these regulated monopolies. Right now, you have no choice to buy energy from. You buy from Entergy or Clico or, you know, some people want to generate, some businesses want to generate their own. I'm a firm believer in competition gives you more choices. You might want to pay less to use normal lines. You might want to pay more to use storm hardened lines so your family doesn't lose power during a hurricane. Um, none, 20 years ago when they considered it in 1999, none of the commissioners then are the commissioners now, yet no one has brought it up in the 20 years uh, until this year. Um, I understand they've been studying it for nine to 12 months, but there's still no action. So this election is going to be critical. This might be our last chance at competition, which, as I said, I believe it maximizes consumer choice and it minimizes consumer costs. Some people may say that's not so. Uh, I'm a capitalist. I think more competition will lower prices. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Mr. Scamera. Same question? Yes, same question. Okay. Uh, well, you know, the Louisiana Public Service Commission does not regulate uh, the city of New Orleans electrical service. That's sure. regulated by the city council. Yeah. But in general principle, uh, the state of Louisiana uh, does have the lowest residential utility rates in the country, and uh, it makes a big difference. But when we look at deregulating, we are studying the potential of deregulation. Unfortunately, we've got good examples with the state of Texas. Half of Texas is deregulated, and half of it is consumer choice, um, and uh, is regulated, and the other half is consumer choice. In the regulated portion of uh, Texas, uh, their regulated utility rates are slightly higher than Louisiana. In their unregulated and consumer choice, it is nearly, it's actually over double uh, what Louisiana is. And what we find is they also have a different approach to integrated resource planning and, and a variety of other issues they do. In fact, one part of it, uh, it's a technical issue where they, they pool their electricity as direct current versus alternating current, and it changes the whole way they plan things. So um, I do think that Louisiana is in a good position to look at how we uh, have effectively brought the consumption of electricity um, into an issue of really keeping prices low. The issue is always going to be on what consumers choose to consume. And we do encourage people to you know, improve their energy efficiency. The commission has a program that we work with through the utilities in one half, where the utilities work money directly for improving uh, residential energy efficiency programs. And we also have another half of that where we work directly with uh, government programs 
in which we provide government with high efficiency. Um, we work through con uh, contractors to provide high efficiency lighting, high efficiency uh, air conditioning systems to reduce government utility bills, and that balances out the interest on tax issues. But you know, the, the, the real situation is if we can keep prices low and give consumers choice, then it's really about how can we improve the lives of people on, in really adjusting their consumption uh, profiles and get them to consume less electricity. Because Louisiana does provide the best value for electricity, but it's really about working with folks and getting them to consume less. Thank you so much. Mr. Boardfield? Well, I do also believe in uh, deregulation leading to lower prices in the free market. I am a firm believer that in an ethical free market, more choices will lead to a lower price point and more choice for the consumer. It's just basic economics. It doesn't take college graduate yet to figure that out. Uh, but I think we need to make sure that we do so responsibly and Deregulation will also invite clean energy producers to come into the state, which will also create a more competitive pricing market for our electrical suppliers in the state. Um, when you look at California's crisis in 2001, I think that could have been averted with a little bit of pre-planning by their service commission uh, as far as what they could have done with the competitive market. They kind of let it go a little too wild. I think you need to rein it in a little bit, but deregulation is the right step. We need to allow more com competition into this market to lower the prices for the consumers. Thank you. Mr. Pearson. Thank you. Uh, one thing I think, I mean, I, I can't dispute or, or disagree. We do have among the lower rates in the uh, country, but also we have among the highest bills or the highest consumption in the country, which does mean it's a simple thing. I think it, it means that we need to consider, you know, and work for more programs for efficiency. I mean, with energy efficiency, someone can probably save 15 to 25% on their bill. I mean, I've seen that done. Uh, that's probably one of the simplest things. And you can do it at different levels. I mean, certainly you can go all out and it costs a lot of money, but there, there are some certain things and, and perhaps some programs are just on a sense of awareness of that to let people know what they can do. One other area, I mean, I, I certainly will look to deregulation. I, it's, I think it's something that we have to be careful of. I mean, it's, I want to do what's right for the consumer and I'm not quite certain. There's a lot to study. There's a lot to study relative to that, but I think the, the efficiency is one of the things. I think we could also, New Orleans has a program where a lot of people are uh, switching over to solars, and they have companies that are in New Orleans um, with the, uh, because New Orleans does have what, uh, it's called, you know, true net metering, whereas the rest of the state doesn't. So it, it kind of depends on your zip code, whether or not you can benefit from it areas of the state, you certainly can. But one of the other things I think we can, we can look at. I mean, Clico, for example, has about a 10% guaranteed rate of return on their capital, on their investments. I, I think energy is probably in the nine, maybe nine and a half range, stuff like that. 
those are the rates that are set. I mean, those are the guaranteed returns that are set by the Public Service Commission. And I think some of those could be looked at as well. Okay, thank you. Oh, welcome, uh, Mrs. Wegman. How are you tonight? You're on. We can't hear you. We can't hear you. No. No, we got, I'm going to come back to you, but try it. We can't hear you. So, um, so what I want to do right now is ask you a yes or no. Wait, uh, do I, did you want me to answer that question also? Alan Boyd no, here? Uh, yeah, you, wait, you moved up. Okay. Uh, uh, yes. uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Boyd. Yes, please. Right now we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic, which has had a severe economic impact on many of the hardworking families of Louisiana. They, they struggle, those that have been impacted by unemployment are struggling right now to pay their electric bills. Uh, low income people spend as much as 20% of their income on, on, on their utilities. Um, while Louisiana has some of the lowest utility rates in the country, we have some of the highest bills as was previously said. We need to work on energy efficiency, where people are, are trained by the electric company and, and receive education on how to use less by, um, by weatherproofing their house and uh, just using energy more wisely. The, um, I think that we should give a hand assistance to those people that are struggling right now. The, um, you know, energy is just, energy itself is just reported record profits and at the same time that so many people in Louisiana the families are struggling so we could do things like waive the late fees and help people uh, with their bills by by making payments and, and keeping the lights on for people. Yeah thank you. Uh, Mrs. Swagman you're with us? Okay we're going to come back so this is going to be a yes or no answer so I'm going to start with Mr. Scarmetta. Would you support a renewable portfolio standard in Louisiana to switch supply from oil, coal, and gas to solar and wind energy? Mr. Scarmetta. Um, a mandated standard, no, but we already do have a renewable portfolio standard in the state of Louisiana. Okay. Mr. Fordfield? I would uh, support a state mandate in conjunction with deregulation uh, to begin making that transition over a 25 to 30 year period. And thank you. Mr. Pearson? It is hard to do with a yes or no answer, but I, I pretty much agree that uh, over a time frame, it, it is something we can look. And, and I think there is, uh, again, there is, there are companies that have been doing this. Okay. Mr. Bourne? An emphatic yes. And we start by starting. Okay. Mr. Mason? It depends on the cost. If we can have green energy that's almost price efficient, absolutely. But if it's going to drive up the price of rates and disproportionately affect the poor, then I think we need to wait until it doesn't place a burden on the ratepayer. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with Mr. Pearson. And now Mr. Swagman's on mute. I don't well, think he might be able to... Play. still on mute. Mr. Swagman, you're still on mute. Can oh, you okay. hear me? 
Thank you. Thank you, Mrs. Wagman. So I'm going to come back to you with the question that's currently on the floor. So Mr. Boardfield, since the PSC has jurisdiction over utilities that could possibly be environmentally unsafe for communities, what would your position be on protecting these endangered communities? Well, first things first, the health of our citizens have to come before any profits. Uh, I believe that especially disproportionately low-income communities are affected by a lot of these uh, health hazard plants, as I call them. And you see it with higher cancer rates. You see it with higher death rates, earlier, uh, shorter lifespans. My position would be that I would take any steps necessary to protect lives and to protect especially those of low income because uh, until recently, it's almost as if nobody's talked about it uh, in, in these types of races. Uh, it's almost been a non-issue. Okay, thank you. Mr. Scrimetta? Um, it's always a consideration for the public when any new uh, type of generation facility is built. Uh, there's six coal plant generation systems in Louisiana, but it only forms less than 10% of the generation fleet. Most of the generation fleet in Louisiana is uh, natural gas driven. It's about 77%. Um, there is a movement towards large industrial scale solar generation. Um, there are currently 13 uh, large industrial scale solar facilities under construction in Louisiana that should be complete within the year. There's an additional seven that should be done within about a year and a half. Those have no environmental impact uh, in what you would call in atmospheric impact, but we looked at we look at environmental impact on the uh, its effect in nature as well in deforestation. But um, you know the considerations are not just on the public service commission level. We also have everything that is built is air permitted by the Department of uh, Environmental Protection. There are uh, permittings from the Department of Environmental Quality at the state level. There is a range of regulatory hurdles that any new uh, generation device goes through. But for the most part in Louisiana, our future lies in a sort of hybrid mix of predominantly natural gas, which is largely non uh, I would call deleterious, but uh, in a combination hybrid element with uh, expanding industrial scale solar. So I think that, well, that is taking into consideration every element for the public. Thank you. Mr. Swagman, did you hear that question? I will say this to you, that if, if the commission is dictated to and owned by the utility companies, then whatever the utility companies want is what will happen. So the most important thing that needs to happen so that there can be sensibility and, and a productive process through all of this is to have independent elected commissioners that will think for themselves and not follow the dictates of the utility companies, then we might have a chance of sensible things being done. But the way it exists right now, whatever the utility companies want, that's what will happen. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Scrimetta? Mr. Scrimetta, 
you so much. Mr. Bourne. Yes, uh, of course, the surrounding neighbors are most impacted by the plants. And there are two. There are the existing plants and the and the new the plants that we plan for the future. Um, the, the surrounding neighbors, of course, are more impacted because the pollution from those plants is more impacted close to them. The further away you get, the more it's dispersed. So I would protect the neighbors by doing monitoring, constant monitoring of the pollution situation. If it if it arises to high levels, uh, giving warnings giving advisories and keeping everybody informed about this, what's going on at the plants. And if there's any hazardous events that people are informed early on so that they, they take warning. Uh, for the new plants, I think we should go out of our way to, to make those have as little impact on the neighbors and the environment as possible. And while uh, coal is the most offers the most pollution. Natural gas also is an element of pollution. And of course, solar, there's no pollution. So we should be steering cost-effectively towards solar. So yes, the, the people surrounding the uh, plants are the number one priority. Thank you. Well, I think uh, just about everyone here is old enough to remember Waterford 3. Um, and of course, no one is going to argue the community absolutely has to be protected. And as Mr. Scrimmana mentioned, they do environmental studies. But the bottom line is the PSC can only regulate up to the limit of their authority. If it turns out we need more protection, not a single lawyer mentioned, you can go to the Louisiana legislature and ask for expanded authority. And to do that, you have to be able to work with the Louisiana House and Senate. I testified on four bills in front of the House and Senate this year, and I'm not claiming credit, but all four of them passed and were signed by the governor. I'm working uh, as best I can to help Senator Beth Mazzell expand rural internet, but I don't want to get too far afield. I have a good history of working with the legislature. If we need more protection, I'll try and do my damnedest to help us get it. Great. And, um, and in fact, this is going to be a yes or no uh, answer, too. Um, in dealing with DEQ, do you all find that they are also protecting communities when they approve permits? Mr. Mason. Sometimes. Okay, I believe you. Mr. Bourne? Yes, most times, yes. They have the interest of the community at heart. Okay, Mr. Swagman? Okay. Mr. Scamata? I think uh, the majority of the time, yes. Also, I would like to add one element. I did find my ballot number at 68. Okay, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, I would say I would like to think that they act in good faith, but it definitely needs to be watched and monitored. Okay, Mr. Pearson? Typically and currently, I think yes. Okay. Now, I guess I have one last question because I see we're about to run out of time. Um, and again, we got to make it quick, so it's going to be a yes or no, or no answer. So we've been talking about rates in Louisiana. Um, it, it appears that actually Entergy New Orleans really charged Orleans Parish more than any place else in the state, but we know why. But would you require Entergy and other investor-owned utilities in Louisiana 
to publicly disclose the amount of money they received from the Federal CARES Act pandemic? Yes or no? Mr. Mason. Absolutely. Full transparency always. Okay, Mr. Vaughn. Yes, full transparency. Absolutely. Here. Thank you. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Mr. Absolutely, full transparency. Mr. Meta. Absolutely. And I will tell you that Entergy New Orleans is about 15 to 20% higher than the state of Louisiana, largely driven by um, the cost of the attorneys in the city that uh, are out of Washington and out of the uh, state exactly. of Colorado. And the city of New Orleans has the largest or the highest cost per kilowatt hour, hour regulatory in the world. So uh, what they spend $10 million on in the city of New Orleans, the Public Service Commission only spends about $2 million the entire state. And that's okay. what drives a major differential. We do hope that changes sometime in the future. Mr. Schweigman? Uh, complete disclosure. And if you, if you take a look at Energy's uh, most recent financial statement, you will see that, that Nazi earns a lower percent of return than Energy in the rest of the state of Louisiana. Okay, thank you. Uh, so, it's like I said, our time is up. I want to thank you. It's late at night. I truly appreciate it. And you have, um, I really uh, admire you guys for running for position during COVID-19. It must be really rough. But I'm glad that we got to speak to you. Our uh, listeners will get to see who you are and hear what you have to say. So, thank you very much. Have a great weekend and good night. Thank you, Dawn. Uh, I didn't give my battle number. It's 63 for Alan Bourne. Okay. Thank you. Uh -huh. Good night. Have a great night. Good night. Feel me now. Gonna feel me now. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah.